Hey friends, M. Faring here. I'm so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope you are able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. Hey, everybody. I'm so excited that you're here again with me for this episode of the OBT Podcast. And if this is your first time joining us, welcome. I love we have this time together to study the Bible. I am so humbled, grateful, and honored even to spend this time with all of you every other week. Okay, friends, let's pick up where we left off in the story of Isaac, Rebecca, Esau, and Jacob. If you recall, we ended the last episode with these verses from Genesis chapter 27. Verse 41 begins, From that time on, Esau hated Jacob because their father had given Jacob the blessing. And Esau began to scheme, I will soon be mourning my father's death, then I will kill my brother Jacob. But Rebekah heard about Esau's plans, so she sent for Jacob and told him, Listen, Esau is consoling himself by plotting to kill you. So listen carefully, my son. Get ready and flee to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay there with him until your brother cools off. When he calms down and forgets what you have done to him, I will send for you to come back. Why should I lose both of you in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I am sick and tired of these local Hittite women. I would rather die than see Jacob marry one of them. Oh my... Now that's some pretty hard, and once again, very manipulative and dramatic stuff for a family to navigate, am I right? Yikes. As a recap of sorts, just to make sure we are all on the same page with what is happening here, we see at the end of Genesis chapter 27 that because of Esau's reaction to Jacob receiving Isaac's blessing, Rebekah warns Jacob to flee to her brother in Haran. Her concern over Esau's Hittite wives is the reason she gives Isaac about sending Jacob away. We will soon read that Isaac does send Jacob away with his blessing to find a wife from Rebekah's family. When Esau sees this, he attempts to gain favor from his parents by taking a wife from the family of Ishmael, who, if you recall, is Abraham's son with Hagar. Phew! So with all this in mind, let's just go ahead and move right into today's reading from Genesis chapter 28 from the New Living Translation, which begins, Isaac called for Jacob, blessed him, and said, You must not marry any of these Canaanite women. Instead, go at once to the Padan Aram, to the house of your grandfather Bethuel, and marry one of your uncle Laban's daughters. May God Almighty bless you and give you many children, and may your descendants multiply and become many nations. May God pass on to you and your descendants the blessings he promised Abraham. May you own this land where you are now living as a foreigner, for God gave this land to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Badan Aram to stay with his uncle Laban, his mother's brother, the son of Bethuel the Aramean. Esau knew that his father Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him to Padaram to find a wife, and that he had warned Jacob, you must not marry a Canaanite woman. He also knew that Jacob had obeyed his parents and gone. It was now very clear to Esau that his father did not like the local Canaanite women. So Esau visited with his uncle Ishmael's family and married one of Ishmael's daughters, in addition to the wives he already had. His new wife's name was Methala, and she was a sister of Nebioth and the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son. Meanwhile, Jacob left Beersheba and traveled toward Haran. At sundown, he arrived at a good place to set up camp and stopped there for the night. Jacob found a stone to rest his head against and lay down to sleep. As he slept, he dreamed of a stairway that reached from the earth up to heaven, and he saw the angels of God going up and down the stairway. At the top of the stairway stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of your father Isaac. 
The ground you are lying on belongs to you. I am giving it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They will spread out in all directions, to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. What's more, I am with you, and I will protect you wherever you go. One day I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I wasn't even aware of it. But he was also afraid and said, What an awesome place this is. It is none other than the house of God, the very gateway to heaven. The next morning Jacob got up very early. He took the stone he had rested his head against, and he set it upright as a memorial pillar. Then he poured olive oil over it. He named that place Bethel, which means house of God, although it was previously called Luz. Then Jacob made this vow. If God will indeed be with me and protect me on this journey, and if he will provide me with food and clothing, and if I return safely to my father's home, then the Lord will certainly be my God. And this memorial pillar I have set up will become a place for worshiping God, and I will present to God a tenth of everything he gives me. So on his 500-mile journey to Haran, Jacob stops for the night and has a crazy dream where he sees a stairway from heaven. Listen to these perspectives I found from several resources, including... First, this devotional titled Heaven's Gate from First Five's Genesis Study. In Genesis 28, Jacob finds himself caught between a rock and a hard place. Jacob was a homebody, a mama's boy, but he couldn't go home now. He had stolen his father's blessing and was a fugitive on the run due to Esau's murderous threats. I imagine his heart was full of disgrace, loneliness, and fear. Would his brother hunt him down and kill him? Would he ever see his parents again? What hope was left for him out in the middle of nowhere? His past was a mess and his future was uncertain. Completely alone and fearful, with questions crowding his mind and emotions out of control, Jacob found a rock to use for a pillow and fell asleep. As he dreamed, God appeared to him. In this dream, he saw a great ladder resting on earth that reached heaven with a host of angels ascending and descending on it. Above the ladder stood the Lord who spoke personally to Jacob, affirming his promises to him. In that unexpected, lonely, hard place, Jacob realized God was there and he had not been aware of his presence before. Then God affirmed his promises to Jacob. That hard place was transformed. Jacob responded in fearful reverence, saying, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Genesis chapter 28, verse 17. That painful place became like heaven's gate. God wants to use the painful places in our lives as a gateway into his presence, just as he did with Jacob. Interestingly, Jacob didn't hear God when he was scheming or fleeing, but when he stopped and got still, he recognized God's presence and heard God's word spoken personally to him. That's when that rock, that stone of misery he laid his head on to sleep became a pillar, a pillar that would be the beginning of a house of worship. Are you in a hard place, a lonely place? You are not alone. God is with you. You may be unaware, but he is there. In the more moments about Genesis 28 section of the first five study, It reads, Amazingly, God gave Jacob the very blessing he had plotted and deceived his father to receive. God is gracious to sinners. He is still in the business of saving fleeing rebels. He delights in showing mercy. He comes to us where we are, not where we should be. Nothing causes God to give up. He can start over with you right where you are. Simply confess the sin that troubles you, allow God to forgive and cleanse you, and then move forward in whatever direction he leads you. Moving on, the Jesus Bible has a devotional called A Stairway from Heaven, and it reads, 
Fleeing to Haran to escape his brother's wrath, Jacob stopped for a night. Jacob dreamed that a stairway stretched from heaven to earth with angels ascending and descending the heavenly staircase. The picture portrayed the grand cosmic reality of life on this earth. While it may seem that all that is real is that which can be seen, there is an eternal heavenly world closely connected to this one. The heavenly realm is consistently interacting with this world in ways that lie beyond what the human mind can comprehend and the human eye can see. Jesus' birth would bring this reality into greater focus. The fully divine and human Son of God would serve as the ladder between heaven and earth, as referenced in John chapter 1, verse 51. At his baptism, the heavens were opened up and the Spirit of God descended on the Son of God, indicating his divine status and God-ordained mission, as found in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. In Jesus, heaven met earth, and with him came glimpses of the coming kingdom as the lame walked, the blind regained sight, and prisoners gained freedom. At the Incarnation, the Son of God descended the heavenly staircase in order to usher sinful humanity into the kingdom of God. And as another resources perspective that I wanted to share with you all today, the Bible recap says, One interesting thing about this dream is that in John chapter 1, verse 51, Jesus refers to the scenario and describes himself as the ladder, a ladder where God descended, not one man climbed. That's a crucial distinction. In this dream, God reiterates his promise to give this particular plot of land to Jacob's family. Remember, this is still the land where their enemies are at the time. For the most part, they live there peaceably amidst the Canaanites, but it's not their place of origin. God also reiterates the prophecy of Jesus here when he says, In you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Jesus is the blessing, and he will be born thousands of years later, extending his saving love to people from among every nation not just from this particular family. Through this one family, all families would be blessed. Jacob wasn't even married yet, but God promised him offspring. Remember, at this point, Jacob is a singular option for carrying out the lineage of God's promise. First of all, that's what God said would happen. But second of all, Esau had already married pagan women outside of God's family. So Jacob is what we've got to work with. He's not perfect by any means. Meanwhile, we see Esau being belligerent and rebellious, He marries his first cousin on his half-uncle Ishmael's side, continuing to marry outside the lineage of God's promise. As a way of tying our studies in Genesis chapter 28 up, the promised one, seeing Jesus in Genesis, reads, Esau's simmering rage made life dangerous for Jacob, and so he had to go. Rebekah sent him off toward her family home in Haran, alone, and certainly afraid that his brother might murderously chase after him, worn out from the struggle, He came to a city called Luz and settled for a rock as a pillow and went to sleep. He was not looking for God, yet God, in grace, came to Jacob that night in a dream. Jacob dreamed of a ladder that reached from heaven down to earth. Unlike a tower built by the people of Babel, this was a ladder built by God. This was not a ladder on which men would make their way up the gates of heaven, but a ladder in which God would come down to man on this night, to a lonely, fearful, loved-by-God heel-grabber. Jacob had every reason to fear that God was coming to curse him, but God came down not to curse, but to bless Jacob, saying, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give you, and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Genesis chapter 28, verses 13 through 14. Jacob was a fugitive, but God promised to bring him back home. He would not be a fugitive forever. 
Jacob had no wife or children, but God promised him offspring. He will not be childless forever. Jacob was essentially impoverished, having left home with nothing, but God promised to give him the land on which he was lying. He will not be impoverished forever. Jacob had no reason to think he was someone God could use in the lives of others. He only knew how to look out for himself, but God promised that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. His life will have impact forever. God made it clear to Jacob that the blessing he longed for was indeed his. He would be the recipient of the promises first made to his grandfather Abraham. God also added a new and special promise. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Genesis chapter 28, verse 15. Jacob was very alone, but God promised that he would no longer be alone. God would be with him wherever he goes. Though Jacob had no future prospects at this point, God assured Jacob that these divine promises would shape his future, that his future would be full of God's blessing. Jacob awakened from this dream in a state of stunned awe, saying, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Genesis chapter 28, verses 16 and 17. Jacob had heard his grandparents and parents talk about Yahweh, but Jacob had never personally met him. Now he has. God has begun a work in Jacob's life, but Jacob will no longer be a work in progress. I know what it's like to be a work in progress too, don't you? Aren't you grateful that God did not wait for you to figure it all out, to rid yourself of self, to center your desires on him before he came to you, revealed himself to you, and began to remake you? Instead, he sought you out, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion as the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, verse 6. Jacob left Bethel with a divine dream imprinted in his mind and implanted in his heart, growing in confidence of God's commitment to bless him and in valuing God's presence with him. Jacob found his way to Haran, and over the coming years, Jacob the trickster will be tricked. He will work for seven years to marry Rachel, only to discover the morning after the wedding that he had married Leah, and will have to work another seven years for Rachel. Jacob the cheater will also be cheated out of his rightful wages by his father-in-law Laban. Did you hear that, my friends? The trickster will be tricked. The cheater will be cheated. The deceiver will be deceived. Goodness gracious. How about we just go ahead right now and continue reading to see how this plays out in the coming chapters of Genesis. Genesis chapter 29 reads, Then Jacob hurried on, finally arriving in the land of the east. He saw a well in the distance. Three flocks of sheep and goats lay in an open field beside it, waiting to be watered. But a heavy stone covered the mouth of the well. It was the custom there to wait for all the flocks to arrive before removing the stone and watering the animals. Afterward, the stone would be placed back over the mouth of the well. Jacob went over to the shepherds and asked, Where are you from, my friends? We are from Haran, they answered. Do you know a man there named Laban, the grandson of Nahor, he asked? Yes, we do, they replied. Is he doing well, Jacob asked. Yes, he's well, they answered. Look, here comes his daughter Rachel with the flock now. Jacob said, Look, it's still broad daylight. Too early to round up the animals. Why don't you water the sheep and goats so they can get back out to the pasture? We can't water the animals until all the flocks have arrived, they replied. Then the shepherds moved the stone from the mouth of the well, and we water all the sheep and goats. Jacob was still talking with them when Rachel arrived with her father's flock, for she was a shepherd. And because Rachel was his cousin, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and because the sheep and goats belonged to his uncle Laban, Jacob went over to the well and moved the stone from its mouth and watered his uncle's flock. 
Then Jacob kissed Rachel, and he wept aloud. He explained to Rachel that he was her cousin on their father's side, the son of her Aunt Rebecca. So Rachel quickly ran and told her father, Laban. As soon as Laban heard that his nephew Jacob had arrived, he ran out to meet him. He embraced and kissed him and brought him home. When Jacob had told him his story, Laban exclaimed, You really are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with Laban for about a month, Laban said to him, You shouldn't work for me without pay just because we're relatives. Tell me how much your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The older daughter was named Leah, and the younger one was Rachel. There was no sparkle in Leah's eyes, but Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. Since Jacob was in love with Rachel, he told her father, I will work for you for seven years if you'll give me Rachel, your younger daughter, as my wife. Agreed, Laban replied. I'd rather give her to you than anyone else. Stay and work with me. So Jacob worked seven years to pay for Rachel, but his love for her was so strong that it seemed to him but a few days. Finally, the time came for him to marry her. I have fulfilled my agreement, Jacob said to Laban. Now give me my wife so I can sleep with her. Laban invited everyone in the neighborhood and prepared a wedding feast, but that night, when it was dark, Laban took Leah to Jacob and he slept with her. Laban had given Leah a servant, Zilpha, to be her maid. But when Jacob woke in the morning, it was Leah. What have you done to me, Jacob raged at Laban. I worked seven years for Rachel. Why have you tricked me? It is not our custom here to marry off a younger daughter ahead of the firstborn, Laban replied. But wait until the bridal week is over, then we'll give you Rachel, provided you promise to work another seven years for me. So Jacob agreed to work seven more years. A week after Jacob had married Leah, Laban gave him Rachel too. Laban gave Rachel a servant, Bilhah, to be her maid. So Jacob slept with Rachel too, and he loved her more than Leah. He then stayed and worked for Laban the additional seven years. When the Lord saw Leah was unloved, he enabled her to have children but Rachel could not conceive. So Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, The Lord has noticed my misery, and now my husband will love me. She soon became pregnant again and gave birth to another son. She named him Simeon, for she said, The Lord heard that I was unloved and has given me another son. Then she became pregnant a third time and gave birth to another son. He was named Levi, for she said, Surely this time my husband will feel affection for me, since I have given him three sons. Once again, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to another son. She named him Judah, for she said, Now I will praise the Lord. And then she stopped having children. Oh my, I don't know about you, friends, but I found it extremely painful to see the many ways Laban's deception left Jacob devastated, Leah rejected, and both sisters caught in cycles of striving, comparison, hurt, jealousy, resentment, and competition even, as they struggled to hold first place in Jacob's heart. Jacob hoped hard work would prove his love for Rachel. Leah hoped a baby would prove Jacob's love for her. Rachel hoped Jacob's love would overcome her infertility. And it goes on and on, am I right, friends? Absolutely heartbreaking, for sure. The Bible recap has this to say about the trickery and deception we see happening here. Jacob was not keen on being tricked, and in fact, it didn't work out well for Leah either. Chapter 29 tells us he hated her, and the Hebrew word used here can also just mean unloved, but it's often used in scripture to describe a mortal enemy, someone you are at war with. But as we talked about before, God seems to have a special affinity for those who are overlooked. He was generous and attentive to Leah even when Jacob wasn't. She became pregnant with a series of sons, four to be exact. The things she names them signal how much striving was in her heart, how very much she just wanted to be loved by Jacob. But by the time we reach the fourth son, it seems like she's beginning to learn that God is enough. The spoken gospel offers this perspective about this family's chaos. 
Like his father who went before him, Jacob finds a woman he wants to marry at a well. Her name is Rachel. Jacob agrees to work for Rachel's father Laban seven years in exchange for her hand in marriage. Thus begins a series of tricks and deceit between Jacob and Laban. Laban deceives Jacob into accidentally marrying Rachel's older sister Leah. Jacob must work seven more years to be allowed to marry Rachel as well. This creates a rivalry between Leah and Rachel that results in them each trying to have children with Jacob. And it's through this outrageous rivalry Jacob has twelve sons, which God would turn into the twelve tribes of Israel. What are we to make of all this trickery and deceit? Why would the fathers of the twelve tribes of Israel come through such morally dicey means? It is to show us something incredibly important about who God is and how He works. God keeps His promises. That's who He is. He promised that Abraham's family would become a great nation, and here we have the beginnings of it. No matter what happens in the world or how messed up we make it, God will accomplish His plans. God repurposes evil intention and shows mercy to people who don't deserve it. This is fully seen in the cross of Jesus. For there has never been a more devious trick played than the betrayal, arrest, false trial, and innocent murder of Jesus. But through these horrid acts, God accomplished everything He promised to Jacob. The cross shows us that no matter how wicked and dark things get, God brings about His good intentions. If He can bring the world's greatest good out of the corrupt murder of His innocent Son— He can bring good out of anything. Continuing on in Genesis chapter 30, we read, When Rachel saw she wasn't having any children for Jacob, she became jealous of her sister. She pleaded with Jacob, Give me children or I'll die. Then Jacob became furious with Rachel. Am I God? He asked. He is the one who has kept you from having children. Then Rachel told him, Take my maid, Bilhah, and sleep with her. She will bear children for me, and through her I can have a family too. So Rachel gave her servant Billah to Jacob as a wife, and he slept with her. Billah became pregnant and presented him with a son. Rachel named him Dan, for she said, God has vindicated me. He has heard my request and given me a son. Then Billah became pregnant again and gave Jacob a second son. Rachel named him Naphtali, for she said, I have struggled hard with my sister, and I am winning. Meanwhile, Leah realized that she wasn't getting pregnant anymore, so she took her servant Zilpha and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Soon Zilpha presented him with a son. Leah named him Gad, for she said, How fortunate I am. Then Zilpha gave Jacob a second son, and Leah named him Asher, for she said, What joy is mine! Now the other women will celebrate with me. One day, during the wheat harvest, Reuben found some mandrakes growing in a field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Rachel begged Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But Leah angrily replied, Wasn't it enough that you stole my husband? Now will you steal my son's mandrakes, too? Rachel answered, I will let Jacob sleep with you tonight if you give me some of the mandrakes. So that evening, as Jacob came home from the fields, Leah went out to meet him. You must come and sleep with me tonight, she said. I have paid for you with some mandrakes that my son found. So that night he slept with Leah, and God answered Leah's prayers. She became pregnant again and gave birth to a fifth son for Jacob. She named him Issachar, for she said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband as a wife. Then Leah became pregnant again and gave birth to a sixth son for Jacob. She named him Zebulun, for she said, God has given me a good reward. Now my husband will treat me with respect for I have given him six sons. Later she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel's plight and answered her prayers, enabling her to have children. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. God has removed my disgrace, she said, and she named him Joseph, for she said, May the Lord add yet another son to my family. Soon after Rachel had given birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Please release me so I can go home to my own country. Let me take my wives and children, for I have earned them by serving you and let me be on my way. You certainly know how hard I have worked for you. 
Please listen to me, Laban replied. I have become wealthy, for the Lord has blessed me because of you. Tell me how much I owe you. Whatever it is, I'll pay it. Jacob replied, You know how hard I've worked for you and how your flocks and herds have grown under my care. You had little indeed before I came, but your wealth has increased enormously. The Lord has blessed you through everything I've done. But now what about me? What can I start providing for my own family? What wages do you want? Laban asked again. Jacob replied, Don't give me anything. Just do this one thing, and I'll continue to tend and watch over your flocks. Let me inspect your flocks today and remove all the sheep and goats that are speckled or spotted, along with all the black sheep. Give these to me as my wages. In the future, when you check on the animals you have given me as my wages, you'll see that I have been honest. If you find in my flock any goats without speckles or spots, or any sheep that are not black, you will know that I have stolen them from you. All right, Laban replied. It will be as you say. But that very day Laban went out and removed the male goats who were streaked and spotted, and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted or had white patches, and all the black sheep. He placed them in the care of his own sons, who took them a three days' journey from where Jacob was. Meanwhile, Jacob stayed and cared for the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took some fresh branches from poplar, almond, and plane trees and peeled off strips of bark, making white streaks on them. Then he placed these peeled branches in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink, for that was where they mated. And when they mated in front of the white streaked branches, they gave birth to young that were streaked, speckled, and spotted. Jacob separated those lambs from Laban's flock. And at mating time, he turned the flocks to face Laban's animals that were streaked or black. This is how he built his own flock instead of increasing Laban's. Whenever the stronger females were ready to mate, Jacob would place the peeled branches in the watering troughs in front of them. Then they would mate in front of the branches. But he didn't do this with the weaker ones, so the weaker lambs belonged to Laban, and the stronger ones were Jacob's. As a result, Jacob became very wealthy with large flocks of sheep and goats, female and male servants, and many camels and donkeys. Okay, friends, since we are quickly running out of time, I'm going to spend the remainder of this episode leaning into some thoughts and possible personal applications found in the story of Jacob, Leah, and Rachel from Nikki Kozyar's book, Why Her? Six Truths We Need to Hear When Measuring Up Leaves Us Falling Behind. Please trust me when I say this will be a very condensed overview of this book. As always, I linked it in the show notes, and I most definitely recommend you all pick up a copy to read this one in its entirety. Time well spent, I promise. So in getting us back to the book, in a section titled, Just Call It Crazy, Nikki says, Rachel and Leah have what I consider one of the hardest comparison stories possible. Two sisters who ended up married to the same guy, Jacob. Most of their story is found in Genesis chapters 29 and 30. The more you read of their story, the more you want to text about it to your friends with the little monkey emoji, the one holding both hands over its mouth. I don't quite understand everything about this story, and you probably won't either, but some of it is truly shocking. If ever a story was able to unpack the why her question, it's this one. Their situation was a little weird, the kind of weird that makes some people wonder how the Bible can ever be relevant to our modern life. I get that. Sometimes the strange cultural dynamics of Bible days are hard to identify with. A lot of things seem odd and just weird. But remember, these people lived a really, really, really long time ago under much different historical conditions. Our modern days would look strange to them too. Like, what if Jesus had a Twitter account? Or tasted the food we eat? Snickers Jesus? But we have to remember... While their rituals and behaviors may not exactly sound relevant, the Bible is always relevant because it reveals deeply rooted truths that never expire. So let's take it back about 4,000 years, where in Rachel and Leah's world, babies were everything. Having babies during this time encompassed so much of a woman's identity. And throughout this two-sister story, we'll repeatedly see the issue of having children and not being able to have children became a key point of comparison between them, 
The struggle with infertility had begun a generation earlier. Their husband Jacob's parents, Isaac and Rebecca, experienced at least some level of struggle in getting pregnant department two. Isaac prayed for his wife Rebecca to bear children, and the Lord answered with a double blessing. Twin boys, Esau and Jacob. Their sibling rivalry started with battling each other inside the womb, followed by Esau trading his birthright for a pot of stew. Men take their food so seriously. Also, Jacob tricked their elderly half-blind father into giving him the firstborn blessing. Things got so bad between the two of them that Esau swore that the minute their father was dead, he would make sure his twin brother wasn't far behind. To keep these two from killing each other, Rebecca and Isaac decided they needed to send Jacob out of harm's way. Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padam Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Genesis chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. That's how Jacob ended up at the community well in a far-off village, where he struck up a conversation with some of the locals, asking if they knew of a man named Laban. Know him? Of course they knew him. Not only did they know him, but look, here is his daughter Rachel coming with his sheep. Genesis chapter 29, verse 6. Love began at that well, when Rachel smiled and Jacob was smitten. She made an immediate impression on Jacob. No sooner had he introduced himself and made a family connection than he kissed her. Fast moves, Jacob. Rachel ran off to tell her father about it, and Jacob and Laban shook hands on a deal. Jacob offered to work seven years for the hand of Rachel in marriage. Now, depending on how much of a romantic you are, the thought of this deal will either make you gag or give you a big love sigh. I mean, how stinking sweet is it that Jacob was willing to work seven years for this woman? Seriously. But to add a note of dramatic conflict to the story, there was soon to be another woman involved, Laban's other daughter, Rachel's older sister, Leah. Although the Bible is not very kind in how it describes her. The ESV says Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. All kinds of opinions exist about the meaning of this description concerning her weak eyes, but you can boil them all down to this. Rachel was beautiful. Leah was not. The first form of comparison we see in this story is based on appearance, and in all places in the Bible. Wonder what it was like for Leah growing up in the shadow of her beautiful kid sister? I'm sure this wasn't the first time comparison had raised its ugly head in their relationship. I'm guessing she'd been made to feel less than on many different occasions. So when Rachel showed up at the house with the man she was going to marry, I wouldn't be surprised if Leah experienced a little bit of what you might call the must-be-nice syndrome. Maybe you've had a symptom or two show up from that syndrome. Me too, friend. Must be nice. Good for her. Wow. I wish I had. These thoughts are such subtle forms of comparison. So I can imagine Leah sitting there watching this Jacob thing play out with her sister, and maybe some subtle thoughts slipped in. Must be nice Rachel has someone interested in her. Must be nice everyone considers her the pretty one. Must be nice our daddy thinks she's worth seven years of work. These must-be-nice thoughts can slip in anywhere, can't they? They're really at the core of our comparison struggle. So Leah is about to find herself in a desperate situation. Let's see what we can learn from how she handles it. The seven years were up. The day had finally come. Jacob had worked seven years for Rachel, and they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. But what happened next was just pure awful. Somehow, under the cover of darkness, within the mysterious wedding customs of this ancient society, Laban was able to pull off a shameful trick. On everybody. That evening, Laban took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and he slept with her. When morning came, there was Leah. So he said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Wasn't it for Rachel that I worked for you? Why have you deceived me? Genesis chapter 29, verse 23 and 25. Can you imagine your own dad using you to trick someone like that? 
It was bad enough that she lived in her sister's shadow her entire life, but to be tossed into a situation sure to make things even worse? It's just awful. Before she knew it, she was married to a man who didn't love her, and a week later, after Laban had swindled Jacob into committing to seven more years of work, her sister Rachel joined the family as Jacob's other wife, his preferred wife, his beloved, beautiful wife. There's a lot we don't know about what this unhappy season was like for Leah, though I think we can all agree her life has gone from bad to worse. But if you read between the lines, you can spot some honesty happening. As I've studied her story, here's what I don't see. I don't see her throwing a fit. I don't see her begging for things to be different. I don't see her throwing herself on Jacob to try to win him over. This doesn't mean her heart wasn't aching, her eyes weren't leaking, and her soul wasn't still asking why her. In fact, we'll see Leah wander away from this quiet place as the story of her life unfolds. But for now, maybe, we don't know for sure. She was just trying to be honest. She knew how she'd gotten here. She knew what she was up against. She knew the differences between herself and her beautiful sister. And instead of going insane over this struggle... Maybe she knew enough not to keep comparing, just to try being herself, to stay quiet instead of competitive. Honesty can lead us to quiet places where we seek to understand rather than merely react. We don't become doormats for the world to wipe its unfair feet on, but we are able to walk into those places where we felt the urge to compare ourselves to others. And amazingly, we find something else waiting for us there. When we choose honesty over comparison, we gain wisdom. Wisdom helps us move beyond the question, why is this happening, to ask a wiser question, what can I do about it? Could anything be more comforting than what God did for Leah? He saw her struggling and hurting as an unwanted wife while her sister was being welcomed with seven years worth of desire. Genesis chapter 29 verse 31 reads, When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was unable to conceive. That's how much God loves us. When we find ourselves in situations that appear to be ruining us, he will give us the grace to survive what comparison can do to us. Choosing honesty with God will give us understanding and a powerful perspective to look beyond what we can see. Ultimately, the honesty we find in trusting His gift of wisdom brings us hope. Continuing on in a section of the book titled Maybe Now, Nikki says, The last we saw of Rachel and Leah in the previous chapter, Laban had tricked Jacob into taking Leah as his wife. Seven years of work for a woman he didn't even want. It was a messy little scenario all the way around. For Jacob, of course, but especially for Leah, and yet we're about to see God's compassion for her. As God opened her womb, as we heard in Genesis chapter 23, verse 31, I believe as I mentioned in the last chapter, Leah started out dealing with this comparison issue with as much honesty as she could muster. We know her unloved heart attracted God's compassionate attention. He stepped in to show Leah that he was with her, that he saw her, and that he was going to bless her despite Jacob's lack of love for her. I love that. But there's something else in this story we need to look at a little closer. Something we need to see like it really is. As you read the following verse, pay close attention to the last few words. Genesis chapter 29 verse 32 says, Leah conceived, gave birth to a son, and named him Reuben, for she said, The Lord has seen my affliction. Surely my husband will love me now. God had blessed Leah in the midst of her burden. But sometimes, like Leah, we want his blessing to mean what we want it to mean. We want to see it the way we want to see it. God, however sees a bigger picture, and knows what will bless us most in light of the story he is writing. The words we hear Leah saying in this verse and in other verses that follow should raise a flag of caution. Surely my husband will love me now. That single word surely contains so much confidence and presumption in it. Leah looked at the blessing God had given her in her firstborn son, and she saw it as a tool for manipulating a bad situation, for causing her husband to notice her, pay attention to her, and see something special in her. 
She saw it as a weapon to launch in the middle of her comparison battle with her sister so that she could get Jacob's heart, the one thing Rachel had that Leah wanted most. However, God's blessings are never meant to be a redemption bullet we shoot into someone else's life. God didn't bless Leah to burden Jacob or Rachel. God didn't bless Leah to prove she was more valuable than Rachel. God blessed Leah to help her know how much she was loved by him and to bring glory to himself by fulfilling his purposes through her life. Whenever we view his blessings as a way of gaining others' respect or putting ourselves ahead of a perceived rival, we're counteracting what God is trying to do in us. We're not seeing things the way they really are. Unfortunately, Leah's misreading of what was happening to her was only the beginning. Genesis chapter 29 verses 33 through 34 read, She conceived again, gave birth to a son, and said, The Lord heard that I am unloved and has given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. She conceived again, gave birth to a son, and said, At last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne three sons for him. Therefore he was named Levi. See the progression, or rather the lack of progression, the rut? See how these thoughts, these desires, these words, this turning of blessings into redemption bullets only emptied her heart even more. Baby number one, maybe now Jacob will love me. Baby number two, maybe now Jacob will love me. Baby number three, maybe now Jacob will love me. All those babies and still no love for Leah. She turned this into a competition for Jacob's heart, but we're not in competition with other people. We receive God's blessings for what he intends to make us who we are and should be, not to get what other people have or to keep up with what other people do. In yet another section titled This Time, it reads, I know this whole sister-wives thing between Rachel and Leah is kind of crazy and not normal for the culture we live in now. But in our society today, if you do something out of what's considered normal, they'll probably put you on TV. Occasionally, I've peeked at a reality show based on a family that lived the polygamous lifestyle out of sheer curiosity with questions like, how are they not jealous all the time? In my peeking, I've never found the answer to those questions. But I personally could never feel valued enough knowing my husband loved another woman. I would constantly be in the state of insecurity, fear, and jealousy. Leah certainly felt that. She was having babies, and that was good. Being a mother gave her something positive in her life. But she remained in a situation where her husband didn't love her. And at the core of Leah's soul, all she wanted was to be loved. It influenced her toward this maybe-now journey, which she battled for years through three pregnancies. Finally, after Leah gave birth to a baby number four, something changed inside her heart. Her response this time was different. Genesis chapter 29 verse 35 reads, She conceived again, gave birth to a son, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Judah. Then Leah stopped having children. I want us to lean into these words that Leah's souls whispered. This time. I'm not sure her desire to win Jacob's love was the only thing that shifted in her heart. I mean, maybe she did get to the place where she was just plain fed up with him. All these years, all these kids, and he still didn't love her. I would have been over it, that's for sure. But since her circumstances hadn't changed, since there was no divorce to get, since there was no caring parents or even a sister with a compassionate shoulder on which to have a good cry, I wonder if this shift in perspective came about because she finally saw things for what they really were. When our circumstances don't change, we only have two choices, settle and pout, or shift and praise. At this point, I think God allowed Leah to see something she needed to see that helped her move on from her comparison struggle. Disappointment in life is inevitable. Each of us has something we've desired to see happen in our lives that hasn't happened yet. And when we don't see it, yet we see it happening in the lives of others, we often feel the need to strive even harder 
Because if she can have it, achieve it, or be freed from it, why can't we? Disappointment is inevitable, but God doesn't want us to settle. He wants us to shift. I realize this shifting to praise is easier said than done. And while I don't know all of the things that might make this choice particularly hard for you, the way it can be hard for me, here's what I do know. God is patient. And while he wants us to get to the place of praise as quickly as possible, he'll still be there even when praising him doesn't feel possible. Moving on to the chapter titled The Other Story, it begins. We've been seeing that things are not always like they seem, how there's always another version to it. And in this story of two comparison-driven sisters married to the same man, the other story is sure to include something unexpectedly surprising. In the last chapter, we saw Leah, the unloved wife, was having babies left and right. Meanwhile, on the other side of the story, Rachel, the one Jacob loved, was yet to become pregnant. But here we go. In Genesis chapter 30, verse 1, it reads, When Jacob saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she envied her sister. Give me sons or I will die, she said to Jacob. Rachel, wow, those are some fighting words there. Jealousy has a way with women's words, doesn't it? Rachel and Leah, two sisters, both craved things out of their control. Each one looked at the other with pain in her heart, tears in her eye, and a soul full of misery. But in the last chapter, we saw Leah make peace with the Lord in her situation. She turned her maybe now into a this time. She was still in the shadow of her sister, but something had shifted in her for the better. But Rachel? She's about to take things into her own hands, something that is incredibly dangerous for a woman hosting a spirit of comparison. Comparison can cloud our thinking and cause us to write stories that are not even happening, which is why the second truth in our why her struggle is so vital to grasp. See it like it really is. Jacob, in response to Rachel's rant, basically said, What do you want me to do about it? Am I in the place of God, who has been keeping you from having children? Genesis chapter 30, verse 2. But Rachel wasn't satisfied with waiting on God, so she had her own idea to control the uncontrollable. She passed off one of her servants to Jacob and demanded that he get her pregnant. I realize that looking at this story through modern eyes, this practice makes us feel a little uncomfortable. Within their cultural context, however, it was an accepted thing for Jacob to sleep with Rachel's servant. It is what it is, or it was what it was. The same scenario also happened earlier with Sarah back in Genesis chapter 16 verses 1 through 6 when she gave her servant to her husband Abraham so that he could get the son he'd been promised. I can't help wondering, though, how Rachel processed the emotional consequences of this sleeping with the servant scheme. Knowing that Jacob slept with her servant, that he was there through the entire pregnancy, that he possibly could start having feelings for this woman. Oh, mercy. Let's move on before I blush too much. So Jacob slept with the servant, she became pregnant, and then Rachel did something quite similar to what we saw from Leah once she conceived. Rachel said, God has vindicated me. Yes, he has heard me and given me a son, as found in Genesis chapter 30, verse 6. Vindication? Is that seeing it for how it really is? The word vindicated means to show or prove to be right. Rachel turned what was supposed to be a blessing for herself into a burden for someone else, for Leah. Rachel carried on with this baby battle, even felt so great about how everything was going that she sent Jacob in for round two. Genesis chapter 30 verse 7 reads, Rachel's slave Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel pipes up again, and after all the shocking things we've heard so far, what she said following the birth of the second boy really shocks me. Verse 8 reads, I've had a great struggle with my sister, and I have won. You've what? You've won? Rachel, I don't know about this. I'm not great at math, but according to my simple calculations, Leah had four babies at this point. Rachel had two. So what on earth was making Rachel think she had won this thing? 
I have a feeling that Rachel was describing the fact that she now had the whole package, Jacob's love as well as the two babies. That's what put her ahead in her mind. But what was really happening in that process of having children, even through a side door option, she was introducing a competition into the marriage mix that had no business being there. Comparison created an unhealthy tension between Rachel and Leah. And even though Leah had called a this time time out over the baby battle, this was not the way it was. The competition wasn't over. Comparison's disillusionment begins when we believe our winning makes someone else lose. But we can begin to see things through more rational eyes once we understand a little better who we really are and who God has made us to be, as well as who others are and who he's made them to be. Most of the competition we feel and fret over comes from not seeing the true worth that's already been placed in us. Life is not a beauty contest or a power play. It is a discovery of and living out our unique role in God's purpose. Neither Rachel nor Leah seemed to know how important they were to the kingdom of God. They were mothering babies who would begin amazing generational lines, the heads of the twelve tribes of Israel. Their little boys would become ancestors to Moses, David, Paul, and the other apostles, amazing men, fulfilling great things God had planned. Yet with such treasure and blessing cradled in their arms and dancing around their feet, these two sister wives seemed consumed more with their status. But the status God was writing for them was way beyond what they could see in their moments of comparing and competing. God is writing a story far beyond anything we can see in the here and now. That's how it really is, not only in her, but also in us. When we do the hard work of letting our faith become top priority, we move into the light where we can see a fuller perspective on what God is doing in each of our lives. We step out of the shadows that are formed by our comparison, competition, and we find ourselves balanced in reality. I wish Rachel could have seen what those words I have won were doing to her big sister. They were causing needless pain, just like Leah's statement, surely my husband will love me now, only manufactured more emptiness and comparison in her heart. Both of these women expressed their high and mighty stances with God. They each boomeranged their blessing into a burden for the other. That's not the way it's supposed to be. God wants to use us. He wants to bless us. But heaven help us when we start to think of our positions as a way to position someone else. But the good news? He gives us more grace. This is why the Bible says in James chapter 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So wherever we find ourselves struggling, in the midst of this struggle, there's plenty of grace. And when God gives us grace we don't deserve, we can freely give it to others. We can see it like it really is. Okay, friends, there is so much more goodness found in the pages of this book, but we just have to cut this excerpt reading off as we are definitely running out of time. As always, am I right? <laughs> and as one more side note, since we ran out of time today, I promise to offer a few thoughts about Laban and Jacob's agreement about the livestock, plus Jacob's blessing of an increase in both flocks and wealth before we move on to Genesis chapter 31, the next time on OOBT. So friends, as we are nearing the end of today's episode, would you please join me in prayer? Father God, truthfully, our hearts are heavy as we read the struggles and chaos found in the combined stories of Isaac, Rebecca, Esau, Jacob, Leah, Rachel, and even Laban. So much tension, confusion, deception, and heartache. God, we ask you to open our eyes to what it is you would like each of us listening to recognize and know about these chapters in Genesis. We thank you that even now you are revealing more of yourself, your heart, your character on these thin, crinkly pages, that you are not only showing us how Jesus is found throughout it all, but also how this applies to our lives as individuals and as Bible study friends. 
Thank you for your tenderness and love in showing your heart and purposes in the good and hard stories of the Bible, in our own good and hard stories. We ask you to help us all see that you can work through anything to accomplish your plan, even sinners like Jacob, Leah, Rachel, and Laban, even sinners like us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Okay, my OB tears, can I just encourage you to subscribe to this podcast? Why should you subscribe, you ask? Well, because that way you don't have to go find it. It comes to you, free delivery. <laughs> and if you want to subscribe, all you have to do is go back to the main page of the Open Our Bibles Together with M. Faring podcast, wherever you're listening right now, and click the subscribe button. Subscribing is the best way to never miss an episode. I will just show up in your podcast app every other Wednesday, ready to study with you. And if you've liked this episode, could you share it with a friend, rate, review, you know, all the things that are truly the absolute best ways to help others find out about this show. Thank you in advance. It truly does mean the world to me. This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friend.